This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back, every Bendy Body. This is the Bendy Bodies podcast, and I'm your host and founder, Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. This is going to be a great episode, so be sure to stick around until the very end so you don't miss any of our special hypermobility hacks. As always, this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for personalized medical advice. Today, I am so excited to have Professor Tiffany Lee with me. She is an adjunct professor of law at Washington and Lee University School of Law, where she teaches courses on disability law, healthcare law, and bioethics. Her research and publications focus on disability rights law with an emphasis on accessible emergency and disaster response, service dog law, and technology accessibility. Professor Lee lives with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and chronic migraines. Professor Lee, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you. Oh, fantastic. I'm so excited to chat with you. This is such an important topic. Can you start out by telling us what the Americans with Disability Act is? So the Americans with Disabilities Act was the first major federal law in the United States that comprehensively protected the rights of people with disabilities. The main three portions of the act that are usually discussed uh, are the Title I, which covers employment law, Title II, which covers the actions of state and local governments, and then Title III, which covers what are called places of public accommodations or the types of places you might go every day, like a, a grocery store or a hotel. Okay, great. And how is disability legally defined? Disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act is any condition that uh, can impair the functioning uh, of yourself in any major life activity. And major life activity is defined very broadly. Uh, Everything from the function of your immune system to uh, a mobility disability to... uh, mental health concerns, to developmental disabilities, um, anything that would impair something that is, is a, as a life activity that we would think of as uh, being something we do regularly. Okay. And do you happen to know, under that definition, what percentage of people in, in the United States, for example, are disabled? I don't know off the top of my head, but it is mm-hmm. a fairly considerable percentage, uh, generally more than most people would think. Yeah, I I would think so. And can you explain what disability benefits are? Disability benefits are SSI or SSDI. And that is um, something that you can receive from the federal government as a result of having uh, a disability that uh, significantly impairs your ability to work and to earn a living. This usually comes also with... um, the provision of, of Medicare benefits in addition to uh, financial support. Okay. Okay. And what about reasonable accommodations in the workplace? Can you explain what, what those are? So reasonable accommodations are uh, any modification made to a workplace or to the nature of a job to accommodate somebody's disability. The term reasonable refers to what's reasonable in the context of the employer. So a major employer may have a much higher threshold for what is reasonable, they may need to provide more. Whereas a very small employer, um, you know, small, you know, family business uh, that doesn't have as many resources may not have to um, take on accommodations that are beyond their means. It also has to be reasonable in, in the sense of being reasonable for the job. You have to be able to still complete the, the basic functions of the job with that accommodation. And then finally, it has to be reasonable in terms of the disability. One important thing with reasonable accommodations is that it doesn't necessarily have to be the individual's preferred accommodation. It -hmm. just has to be adequate to accommodate them and reasonable in context. Yeah, this is something I think a lot of people really struggle with, and it can be very, very challenging. How can an employee 
get a sense of whether or not what they're requesting is a reasonable accommodation. So in an ideal situation, determining accommodations is going to be this interactive back and forth process with the employer where you come to a mutual understanding of what's going to work for the employee and for the employer. But one thing you can do if you're really not sure where to start is you can you can get online and see what other people who are impacted in similar ways, whether or not it's the same diagnosis, who have similar um, life impacts from their disability, what they have found to be useful in the workplace and ways that they have found that, that employers can best accommodate them. And a lot of times that's a good starting point. Um, doctors, physical therapists, occupational therapists, they can also be great resources in determining what accommodations uh, may work. Mm -hmm. Okay. And are there particular groups that you're aware of that people can join to get that kind of information? There are a number. There's the American Association of People with Disabilities, which um, uh, determines, uh, what well, doesn't really determine, it uh, represents the, the needs of people with a wide variety of disabilities. But also there are disability specific groups who may be able to provide more specific advice on uh, the impacts of a specific diagnosis and what's reasonable for that. Um, and I've, I've honestly found online forums to be pretty useful for accommodations because with that, you're getting firsthand accounts of what have, has worked for specific individuals who may have um, similar limitations in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And reasonable accommodations, how does that apply to someone with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or a related condition like hypermobility spectrum disorder, mast cell activation syndrome, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, et cetera? So a reasonable accommodation is not really based on diagnosis. It's based on the individual's um, functional needs. Mm. So for example, for me, as somebody with, with Ehlers-Danlos, um, I need good seating at a desk. And since I'm a part-time wheelchair user at work, I need to have you know wheelchair access. I need to have a desk that can accommodate my wheelchair to pull up under. Um, I, I'm very lucky where where I teach that things are, are really quite accessible. Uh, in fact, the, the desk in my classroom actually raises and lowers that mm. uh, can accommodate um, whatever height, height you need. Um, for somebody with, um, with POTS, for example, uh, sometimes a modified work schedule, if that can be arranged or partial work from home, um, I tend to try and arrange my schedule so that I can get home uh, at some point during the day, most days to, to rest and to work from home. Uh, and that's, that's not possible with all jobs. Uh, so sometimes you have to be creative in, in finding uh, solutions. Yeah, that makes sense. And are you familiar at all with disability law in other countries? Because we have listeners from all over the world. Not in any degree of detail, no. Um, most countries have some form of disability rights law. Uh, the extent of the coverage of that, uh, who it covers, what it covers, and what rights are protected uh, varies uh, pretty considerably. Uh, so I would especially note that nothing I say can really be taken to apply specifically uh, to other countries, even other countries with similar legal systems uh, like Canada or the UK. Mm -hmm. um, each each country does things very differently. Okay. Okay. And in terms of accommodations, um, I, I know it's quite common for people to request accommodations, for example, if they're a college student. Um how do they go about getting those accommodations and, and how do they determine what's appropriate? So the accommodations process in college usually starts with making contact with the disability services um, department, uh, which can be under a, a number of different names. But if, if you call and you ask for disability services, that'll usually get you to the right starting point. And likely you'll be asked to meet with somebody there and you'll discuss your situation. They will likely request uh, documentation uh, showing um, what your disability is and what might be reasonable accommodations. And then in some ways similar to employment, there's there should be this uh, interactive process of determining 
um, what will allow that individual to best access higher education while maintaining uh, the nature, the essential nature of, of that education. And this can be, this can be difficult at some schools. Uh, schools um, and colleges vary pretty dramatically in uh, how well they work with students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I always recommend that if you are a person with a disability looking at higher education, uh, whether you're coming straight out of high school or you're going back to school, that you talk to other students with disabilities at that particular campus and find out what their experiences are, because it, it really can uh, make or break the experience of a, a person with a disability um, on a campus based on how well disability services um, handles the accommodations process. Yeah, that's not surprising to me. I happen to know somebody who went to a small uh, private school and um, really all it took in that instance was a parental figure speaking with somebody who was pretty high up in the department and explaining what the situation was and what kind of accommodations would be helpful. And then a further conversation between the student and um, this person who was high up in the department. And and that was it. Then the accommodations were put in place. They were relatively minor. So I think that that helped. But I can see where it could vary dramatically depending on the size of the school and how it's structured and um, a variety of factors like that. Mm -hmm. And so. sometimes uh, there can be pushback from faculty as well who mm -hmm. may not want to provide accommodations. In those cases, mm -hmm. uh, disability services is, is your best resource because they, uh, they can enforce uh, the, those accommodations. Yeah, that's a really good point. So even if you have accommodations in place, if you're having difficulty with a particular faculty, it's a good idea to get in touch with disability services because they can help facilitate that for you. And to do so as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Being proactive, I think, really helps as compared to waiting until things are really in some kind of a more dire situation. Yeah. What about in high school or elementary school? How does that differ? So that differs substantially because that's actually under a completely separate law, the IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And under that, uh, the schools are required to uh, identify students with disabilities and provide them with uh, appropriate accommodations in an individualized manner. And when this, these are usually called IEP plans. There's also something called a Section 504 plan, which is under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. And that predominantly looks at modifications to things like physical environments and schedules, uh, whereas IEPs look more at uh, the nature of how things are, are being taught or presented. So, for example, somebody who may just need more time between to get from point A to point B between classes may only have a 504 plan. Whereas uh, somebody who requires um, learning disability services may be better benefited by an IEP. And those plans uh, are, especially for younger students, handled by a team at the school and the student's parents. Ideally, as the student gets older and by the time the student is in high school, the student will uh, start playing a role in this process as well. Um, because it's important for a student to learn as they get older and they're looking at moving either into higher education or the workplace, how to advocate for themselves and, mm -hmm. uh, and their own accommodations. Because once you start college, really everything changes. It's now entirely that student's responsibility. Mm -hmm. Right. And I hear so often from parents that they have difficulty getting 504 plans or the IEPs in place. And it can be for a variety of reasons, and I'm sure you hear similar things. Do you have suggestions for people that are really struggling to get these kind of plans in place? One thing that can be very beneficial is to find an advocate. It doesn't necessarily need to be um, an attorney, although that having an attorney has a certain weight behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, an advocate from an organization uh, either that is disability specific or that works specifically in education uh, can be very helpful in 
helping a parent establish what they need to do in their individual circumstance. But a lot of it is, is simply continuing to push. Um, unfortunately, I think some some schools think that if they make things difficult enough, the parents will stop pushing yeah. for those accommodations. Um, and you really can't stop. Uh, you really have to continue that push. That said, I, I, I do know of many parents who have opted to, to move or to put their children in private schools because of the uh, difficulties they've had with particular school districts, which is, is very unfortunate. Wow, that definitely is. And probably for those families, moving is probably quite an ordeal in order because they obviously have a child that's disabled enough that they're, that they're making that choice. So that's got to be really hard. Why do you think the schools do that? I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? Some of it, I think, is simply a lack of education um, mm -hmm. or a lack of knowledge and awareness um, of people with disabilities. Sometimes it's, it's also funding. Um, Certain accommodations are expensive to provide, such as a one-on-one -on -one aid. And while it's expensive, it is still the school's responsibility to do so. However, I think there is some reluctance um, due to the expense. Um, and of course, uh, a lot of public schools aren't working with, with a very large budget. And mm -hmm. as budgets get cut, um, services tend to get cut as well. With that said, that doesn't remo remove their obligation under the law to provide these services. But I do think that plays a large role. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and we had some really great questions from people on social media when I shared that I was going to be speaking with you. And I'd love to share some of those questions with you. Um, the first one was, how much should you share about your disabilities with employers if you're applying for universities and, and that kind of thing? So there are two schools of thought, especially with employers. Um, I tend to be of the school of thought of share the minimum that you can possibly share, uh, which in the application process, usually until you get to an interview is nothing. Um, you're under no obligation to disclose anything about your disability or medical condition. Now, if you have a disability that is visibly obvious, um, of course, if there's an in-person interview, that will become apparent, uh, but you're under no obligation to answer any questions about your disability. Um, and they really shouldn't, they shouldn't be asking about it either during the application and interview process. Really, the only thing they can ask is, can you do this job with or without re reasonable accommodations? Uh, and the only thing you need to say to that, assuming you can, is yes. Mm. Once you get, once you have an offer, that's where the accommodations process and this, this interactive process of, of determining appropriate accommodation should start. Some people are more comfortable disclosing ahead of time because they want to uh, find out for, the, for themselves early on how willing that employer is going to be to work mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. um, and they may choose not to proceed in the application process if they think that, that the employer is not going to work with them. With uh, college and university applications, a lot of times we see students talking about this in um, their personal essays. And I don't think there's anything, anything wrong with that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't discourage that. Um, how much you want to disclose, I think, is in that situation is, is just very personal. Um, that, of course, uh, disability services is not going to see that. And so I wouldn't imagine that that would negatively impact uh, accommodations later on. Uh, but again, um, there is always the possibility of discrimination. And that's something that, that you have to keep in mind when deciding how much you want to disclose. I think it could also be hard, at least as you're talking about this, and I'm thinking about various different jobs that I've had and things that I hear from different people, that it perhaps could be difficult to figure out how well you'll be able to perform the job with and without accommodations. Is that something that you see as well? Yeah, it, it can be hard because sometimes if you haven't worked in that field before, especially mm -hmm. you may not know what works for you and, mm -hmm. and what doesn't. And in fact, I, I know somebody who's in that situation right now. Now, if you reasonably believe that you can do it with accommodations, then you should say yes. 
Uh, there is always the chance that it won't work out, that you'll get on the job, that the accommodations you thought would help won't, and you'll be back to square one looking, looking for another job. But I would say that as long as in good faith, you believe that you can do that with those accommodations, uh, that it's appropriate to say, yes, I, I can, I can do this. And again, that's something that, um, you know, an occupational therapist may be able to, to help you determine. That's a good point about the occupational therapist, because I can also see where it could be challenging if you end up in a job that was not a good fit, and then it's a relatively short-term situation. Could Do you have to, let's say it's, you know, you have a, like two jobs in a row that are relatively short-term. Do you have to disclose those? Do you have to include those on your resume or and or if you're applying for another job? Because I feel like that could be perhaps um, taken against you. You really don't have to. I mean, what you what you choose to include on your resume is is entirely up to you. Um, and if it's been something, if it was something very short term, um, then it it may not be worth putting on your resume. At mm-hmm. the same time, if there's gaps in your resume, that that may be something you'll be asked to explain during the interview. So I would be mm-hmm. I would be prepared for that. Sure. Okay. That's super helpful. And what about getting a service dog? What advice do you have about that? So I actually had a service dog for many years. Um, I don't at the moment. There's really three ways you can get a service dog. Um, you can do sort of the traditional way and go through a service dog school, an established school and an established program. Uh, you can work with a private trainer um, or you can train a dog yourself. I went the self-training route because at, at the time, and this was quite a while ago, they really weren't training dogs for what I needed at that Mm. point in schools. But I had a background in animal training. Mm. And I think the self-training method can be very difficult if you don't have some background in that. Not impossible, but I think a lot of times it's harder than most people realize. Mm -hmm. Um, When you work with schools, my main caution that I give people is if a school requires you to fundraise for them, uh, which is different than paying a fee for a dog. If they require you to fundraise for their organization a certain amount to get your dog, keep in mind that if if the relationship between you and that organization, which is presumably would be a nonprofit if you're fundraising, if that relationship breaks down, that money does not come back to you mm-hmm. because that was a donation to a nonprofit. So that's theirs. And that money is then gone. Um, as far as your ability to get a dog. So I do caution people that when they work with schools who have that model, and quite a few do, to remember that they're not paying for a service dog for themselves or asking people to contribute towards paying for a service dog. They are simply making a donation to an organization and that that does not guarantee at the end of the day that they will receive a service dog. Uh, it's also very important to read reviews of service dog schools. Um, unfortunately, as service dogs have um, gotten more common, uh, more and more fraudulent schools have mm-hmm. appeared who either take people's money and provide nothing, or they um, take people's money and provide uh, an untrained or minimally inadequately trained animal. So it's important to read reviews and to talk to people who have worked with that organization before. And if an organization is reluctant to put you in touch with their any of their current handlers, that that's a red flag. That's really fascinating. I had no idea that there were organizations like that. So there, is there no like kind of parent organization that regulates that industry or? Not really. Um, mm. There are some voluntary uh, organizations like Assistance Dogs International that schools can choose to be certified through, um, but that's not required. And many very good service dog schools are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so while there are those things in place, there there is really no overarching regulation of, of service dog schools. The, the one small exception to that is that in California, there are regulations that apply to guide dog schools, mm-hmm. um, but not to other service dog schools. Mm-hmm. So in some instances, you're required to fundraise for that organization, but that money does not go towards your dog specifically or anything like that. 
And in other organizations, maybe you might have to directly pay for the dog. Is that what you're saying? Okay. And some organizations provide them for no or, or low cost as well. Mm-hmm. You will probably wait a bit longer for those. Um, but it is, is certainly the, the less expensive um, option. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that's less expensive than training your own because there are, my experience was that there are a lot of unanticipated expenses that come with training your own dog as well. Not to not trying to discourage that, but it's it it is usually harder than most people think. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I feel like that would be appealing to a lot of people, and I feel like that's someone people are going to listen to that and they're going to think, "Wait, I want to know more." Yeah. So when you train your own dog, there if you look at the the rate of um, uh, dogs bred for service dog schools. Um, that actually make it through the program and graduate as service dogs, it's a fairly small percent. And those mm-hmm. are dogs that are specifically bred for characteristics that they're looking for. When you get a dog, whether you adopt a dog or, or purchase a puppy or however you do that, um, you have to have a plan in place if that dog doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Like I have a dog right now. He's, he's almost 14. Um, and he was supposed to be my service dog. Mm. It became very obvious as we moved through his training that that was not the life for him. Mm. Um, The life for him was, uh, you know, sitting on the couch in the sun um, and not working. And if a dog is not motivated to work, is not interested in working, they won't work well. And so you have to have a a contingency plan, really. Um, What are you going to do with that dog if if it doesn't work out? and that can be, obviously, getting a dog can be an expense, especially if, if you're purchasing a dog from a breeder. Um, or even these days, adoption fees can be quite significant mm-hmm. from, from reputable right. rescues. And then it, it's a lot of time. And if you work full time, that's very difficult. Um, if you have a family, if you have children, uh, finding the time to do that is hard. Um, if you don't have a background in animal training, the chances of you needing to hire a trainer at some point are really pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, is usually quite expensive as well. Um, and then there's other small expenses, of course. What if the dog, you know, develops a medical condition? Um, you know, some service dog schools provide um, emergency aid in situations with one of their dogs. But if it's, if it's your dog that you're training yourself, that's entirely um, on you. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are a lot of complications that you have to, to think, think through. Um, and I don't regret my decision to train my own dog, um, but it was, it was harder than I anticipated. And that was coming from a background with some training experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is definitely difficult because even if you've trained a pet, training a dog to the level of, of being a working dog is, is very different uh, because you have to have a dog that's essentially bomb proof in public mm. um, and that can focus and that can perform their job with uh, a massive amount of, of distractions and small children running up and grabbing them and, um, you know, construction noise and uh, motorcycles going by, other dogs that might not be friendly. There's really a lot that that goes into that training. Wow. And if you get a dog from a um, an organization, when you actually receive that dog, is most of that training already done? So they, they already can um, avoid those distractions and that kind of thing? Or do they still need a fair bit of training after that? So most of that training should already be done, but that training does have to be maintained. Uh, so training never really stops, uh, but the fundamentals should be there. The dog should be safe to use in public, um, should be able to focus and not get overly distracted. Um, but there is, is ongoing work. And if you get a dog from a school, usually they will train you to train the dog and to keep up, up their skills as necessary. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that means going um, to the training center uh, where the dogs are trained for uh, sometimes even two to three weeks. Um, sometimes they'll, they'll send a trainer and the dog to your home. Uh, but it does take 
take some time uh, to do that. But usually they do a fairly good job of making sure that uh, those, those basic skills, what are called public access skills, in other words, mm-hmm. what a dog needs to do to be a good citizen in public, mm-hmm. um, along with whatever tasks they're trained to do, uh, have already been well established um, through training. And if you're training the dog yourself, at, how do you know at what point, well, I guess, how do you know what, how to train them, I guess, first of all, and then at what point they've completed their training? How does, how does that work? So um, I'm going to answer the second part of that first, I think. Um, okay. When they've completed their training, um, a couple of things, really. Uh, there is no requirement. There is no registry. There is no test that's required hmm. by the law for your dog to be a service dog. Your service dog has to meet a couple of basic criteria to be covered by the ADA. Um, One is that it has to perform tasks or do work related to the person's disability. And that is the fundamental test of a service dog versus uh, a pet or an emotional support animal or a therapy dog. Uh, And that is the the task or work training. There's also... um, a number of, of different public access tests that you can find online that give pretty much a checklist of, of what your dog needs to be able to do in public uh, to be adequately well-mannered um, to work in a public environment. And those, again, those are not required by law, but they are a good uh, kind of minimum standard that you should be aiming for. Um, and I do want to emphasize minimum standard um, in most cases, you'll want to go beyond that. Uh, and it's not always fun to have a dog with you everywhere you go. Uh, people, people think it'll be great, but uh, it's, it's sort of like having a three-year-old with you everywhere you go. Uh, a useful three-year-old, but still a three-year-old. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> So, because in addition to your own needs, now you have to worry about the needs of, of the animal that's with you. Mm-hmm. Sure. And how would somebody find um, it, basically how to do this training and or how to hire somebody to help them with that training? So doing it yourself, um, there, are, there are programs online that you can look at that um, cover dog training. Um, personally, I'm, I'm a positive reinforcement trainer. Um, I, so I follow that methodology in all the mm-hmm. training I do. And really good fundamental dog training skills apply regardless of if you're training a service dog or any other type of dog. Uh, so good training is good training. And as far as hiring a trainer, I look for the same things. I look for a trainer that, um, I would look for a trainer that has a similar philosophy of training to mine, methods that I'm comfortable with. I'm going to want to talk to some clients um, to see what their experiences have been. Um, And if they're a good trainer, I may not be particularly concerned about whether or not they've worked with a service dog before, because again, um, good training is good training. And most trainers, I think in most cases, are going to be able to figure out how to teach or how to teach you to teach Um, the necessary service dog skills. In some cases with um, alert dogs, though, um, you may want to work with a trainer specifically that has has worked with that because that is a little bit beyond teaching sort of mechanical skills, Um, you know, like helping with balance or things like that. Okay. Now, so the first thing I was thinking when you said that is, can you describe what alert dogs are? So alert dogs are dogs that alert to the, the, either the presence or the impending presence of a, of a medical condition. Hmm. Uh, the most, I think the most commonly known are probably seizure alert dogs. Mm-hmm. And those are dogs who can detect seizures um, before they happen. Whether or not that's something that can be trained has been debated. Some dogs have the ability to do that. Um, there are people who claim that that can be trained um, but there's, there's been some debate about whether or not that can actually be taught or if that's somehow innate. Um, diabetic alert dogs are also fairly common. Um, they alert to high or low blood sugar readings. Um, you have to be very careful with trainers who claim to be able to provide that. A lot of the schools, a lot of the fraudulent schools that have been the subject of lawsuits have been for alert dogs. Uh, 
Mm. Um, and more and more often now I'm seeing um, people who are having good luck with uh, POTS alert dogs who alert to, um, you know, sudden increases in heart rate um, and can then alert alert the handler that, that they need to take steps to avoid passing out. That's just amazing to me that dogs can sense um, impending seizure, high and low blood sugar, and, you know, that changes in heart rate. That's really incredible. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I, none of my dogs have, have ever really kind of picked up my, like my heart rate changes, but uh, it's, it's amazing what, what some dogs can do. I've witnessed personally um, service alert dogs. At least there's one specific example where the person's service dog literally saved her life. And I was at a conference and she was laying on the floor. And at, at first you could see her eyes were open and she was just laying there kind of calmly. And the dog was right next to her, also calm. And then all of a sudden the dog started barking and she had stopped breathing. And they asked, you know, is there a doctor? It was a medical conference, but I was the only one who responded. Now I'm an anesthesiologist, so it was also appropriate for me to be helping manage this person's airway. It was an EDS conference, actually. And, um, and so it was so interesting to me that this dog really could detect when, she, when you know, I mean, obviously I don't know exactly the time frame of when she stopped breathing versus when the dog started barking, but, um, you know, she was able to be resuscitated and everything and she was, and she was fine. But um, yeah, it's really an amazing situation. Mm-hmm. And good thing you were there as well. <laughs> Turns out it was, yes. <laughs> yes, for sure. So um, I want to move on to a slightly different topic in terms of like people you know, really struggling with getting um, disability or working with, for example, one of the questions that was asked, how does someone advocate for themselves with unresponsive disability lawyers? And, and I have actually seen this. I have patients that have asked me to fill out disability paperwork and they'll tell me that they've just really struggled to get the attention that they need. And um, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, personally, when I come across an unresponsive lawyer, my first step is usually to switch lawyers. Um, because I've found that unresponsive lawyers tend to stay unresponsive lawyers. Mm. That said, um, I know that's not an option everybody always has. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're having trouble reaching the lawyer, um, reach out to if they have a paralegal or legal assistant or a secretary. I would I would reach out to those people because a lot of times they may be able to get the attention of, of the attorney um, mm. better than than you might be able to, but definitely don't get give up. You don't necessarily want to be calling them two or three times a day, but uh, if you're not hearing back, um, you do need to to continue to reach out regularly uh, because they should not be ignoring you. Um, mm-hmm. That's really something that that would be considered very unprofessional. Mm-hmm. Sure, but is... you, yeah, it, it's <laughs> unfortunately sometimes it's it's very hard to get a response. Mm-hmm. Um, my my best luck has been with reaching out to, to paralegals and legal assistants. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. And uh, what if somebody gets denied disability benefits the first time around? So that's pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you should almost go into the process assuming you're going to get denied and planning to appeal. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you can do is request reconsideration. Um, if that does not result in a positive outcome, uh, you'll want to request a, a, a hearing. And these hearings are with what's called an administrative law judge. And these are, are judges, not in the regular courts, but that work with agencies like Social Security um, to help determine these cases. Your chances in a hearing are definitely better if you have an attorney or a professional advocate. Um, I know that's not possible for a lot of people who are applying for disability for financial reasons. But sometimes you can find an advocate um, who may work uh, on a sliding scale or pro bono basis. And if you can find somebody, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Beyond the hearing level, there are additional appeal steps you can take. um, But at this point, we're starting to talk about years. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's very important when you when you start out that you have all of the paperwork that you need when you file for reconsideration or an appeal that you provide as much supporting documentation as possible 
because that will definitely improve your chances. And really the, um, the previously denied cases that get approved on, uh, on appeal uh, during the disability hearing, depend it depends a little bit on the state, but is usually somewhere around 50%. So it's, it's certainly worth taking that step um, mm -hmm. and going to a hearing. I had a patient not too long ago who went to the hearing process and did get approved after the hearing and did get retroactive payments. Is that a common thing? Yes. Retroactive payments are, are pretty much always given um, okay. to the time of, of the original uh, filing. Okay. So even if it takes years, obviously that's also, a, you know, you're probably really struggling during that time, but it's reassuring to know that if it does get approved, that you will probably get retroactive payments. Yes. So, okay. That's okay. true with VA disability as well. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, this was an interesting question. Uh, somebody asked, what legal recourse is there for the undertreatment of pain? Unfortunately, not much. Um, there were some cases in the late 90s and early 2000s that looked like they might be giving us a kind of a legal pathway and a legal theory for that, but that really sort of fell apart, um, you know, after about 2005. And really, we're not seeing any success with legal cases um, for undertreatment of pain. It's very difficult to show that that is malpractice, mm -hmm. um, especially with the opio opioid epidemic. Um, mm -hmm. And as somebody who's been undertreated for pain, I, I definitely sympathize with that. But there's not a lot of legal recourse. Um, the cases that were successful in the past have, have been end-of-life care cases. Mm -hmm. um, and at least one of them was actually under, they didn't pursue it as a malpractice case. It was as elder abuse um, mm -hmm. for withholding end-of-life pain medication. And that was only possible, this was in California, because of, of the specific nature of how the California law for elder abuse was written at the time. So really, unfortunately, there's, there's not much. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I do want to point out that there, while, while opioids are appropriate in some cases, there definitely are other treatments for pain. And it's so frustrating to me how little education there is about this in medical schools. I have given some lectures in medical schools for this particular topic, but unfortunately a lot of physicians are just not adequately educated and, or don't have enough time really to um, enact those kinds of uh, treatments. So there's multiple ways that we can address pain, but yeah, it is unfortunately a, a big, a big problem. Yeah. And it is, it's a, it's an ethical issue as well yeah. um, with the under treatment of pain, but there's not a lot we can do on the legal front right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the end of life, I, I definitely know of another, well, I'm sure there's many um, cases of, about that, but yeah, that's really, really tragic. Um, what about, somebody asked about what are the best possible accommodations for productivity standards? So that's really going to depend on the nature of the job um, and the nature of the individual's needs, unfortunately. Um, I can't really give a lot of specifics in that regard. Again, mm -hmm. I, I would recommend talking to um, occupational therapy and, and physical therapy and seeing what's going to work based, best in that individual case. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that, that tends to be very situation specific. Okay. All right. And what about if somebody has medical records that contain inaccuracies or they feel like they've been gaslit um, through their medical records? Is there, are there things that they can do? There are. You do have a right to, to um, request an amendment of your uh, medical records. Um, this is uh, actually part of HIPAA, which people think about mostly for, for privacy, but it impacts mm -hmm. your control of your medical record as well. Mm. Usually what you do is um, you'll you'll let them know. Sometimes there's a form available depending on, on who is maintaining those records um, that you have a disagreement with that record. And they are required to investigate that and to get back to you with their determination. Now, if they determine that in, in their opinion that it's correct, you can request to have your letter disagreeing with it put in your medical record and attached to that specific 
record so that in the future, if somebody is, is looking at those records, they can see that you raised an objection uh, to what was stated in, in your record. And I, unfortunately, I don't, my experience has been that a lot of times you don't end up getting things changed. Uh, but it's always good to at least have that note in there that, um, that indicates that you expressed disagreement with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you do have a right to request that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if it, if they do agree and do change it, um, do you know how that works? Um, they, they should change the record, amend the record to mm -hmm. whatever is, is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And then another one of the questions was, how can someone get insurance to cover, in quotes, zebra things? <laughs> um, yeah, I know that can be, that can be difficult. Um, the more documentation you have, the better mm -hmm. um, for whatever you're requesting. Um, and having your doctor strongly on your side uh, mm -hmm. for whatever that request is will be very helpful as well. If something is denied by insurance, you do have the right to request an additional review of that. Um, one important thing, though, is to find out why they declined it um, so that you know actually what you're trying to do when you appeal. Um, and it's one thing that can be difficult when you're putting together an appeal letter um, is to stay objective because Obviously, this is something that is very, very personal to people um, and can be very emotional because this is something you need to live your life. And so have somebody read over that appeals letter before you send it. Um, mm. Have as much factual evidence as you can, as much documentation as you can. Um, you can request uh, internal reviews. Um, you can, usually there's two levels of that for most, most insurance and, and this, in, uh, includes Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and then most times you can also request an external review, somebody not affiliated with the insurance company to review really? that. Oh. Um, how that works will to some extent depend on your state though. Mm -hmm. So what your rights are at that point. Mm -hmm. okay. Um, but there are definitely ways to, to appeal and request consideration. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always work. Um, it's worth trying again later if you can get more documentation or more, more evidence supporting what you're requesting. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're denied once, you know, and you can find something additional to support it, it's certainly worth trying again. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how do you know that it's time to get an accommodation like a mobility aid or apply for disability? So a lot of that's very personal because people have the, people have a lot of um, uh, emotional responses to using mobility aids. Um, mm -hmm. I started using a wheelchair part-time about, I guess it's been about 10 years ago now. Um, prior to that, I used a service dog for most of my mobility. And for me, the consideration was, will this let me live my life the way I want to? Um, and when, as soon as that answer was yes, that's when I felt it was the right time for me to start using a mobility aid. Um, dis applying for disability has additional considerations because it also impacts your personal finance. Um, you have a certain, there's a maximum amount of assets you can have to go on disability, um, which is very low. And that uh, has a pretty significant impact on the way your life is going to go. Um, the amount of work that you can do, you can work some, but you can't make more than a certain amount per week. Um, and you can't ever have more uh, than I think it's $2,000 of, of assets. And mm. that essentially requires that you not work and live in some degree of poverty. And so that's a, something you have to take into consideration. Are you at the point where, where that is now the case um, and applying for disability is now necessary? It can also be more difficult, unfortunately, if you're married because your, your spouse's um, or 
income will be taken into into consideration as well. Um, there is definitely a essentially a marriage penalty on disability. Um, so a lot of times that's that's something that's best I think considered as far as your personal circumstances and looking towards the future. Um, you know, are you in a situation where it's very unlikely that you're ever where you're going to in the near at least in the near future be able to support yourself without uh, disability benefits. And if that's true, then yeah, it, it may be time to apply. Mm -hmm. I just want to come back to that. So you cannot have more than $2,000 in assets. What, what, like, does that include where you live, your car? Generally your house does not count. Um, but it may include your car. Um, if it's above a certain value, um, makes it very difficult to have a savings account or to plan for the future um, or to plan for retirement. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's um, it, it's really a, a major ethical issue um, in the way you know our disability system treats people with disabilities um, because it says essentially you have to be this this level of impoverished. Mm -hmm to qualify and you can't ever make your life situation better without risking your health care and the, you know, income that you're relying on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you probably won't be able to, if you're single, you probably won't ever be able to marry. Um, and it's, it's really sad. It's um, the way that, that the system treats people with disabilities um, because it, it, and I've seen, I, I saw a college student once, um, he had been working on this car for years, really nice car. He'd done a lot of work on it, but he was getting ready to graduate from college. He was probably going to have to go on disability because he had not been able to find employment due to his disability. And, um, the car was being held against him as an asset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He had to, he had to get rid of it. Wow. So. There's a lot in there that I was not aware of, so I really appreciate that um, excellent information, although it's obviously really tragic how a lot of that is structured. If you had a magic wand, how would you change our disability structure in the U.S.? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't really know of any other place that does it any better. Um, hmm. I, I have always liked uh, what were called ticket-to-work programs which mm -hmm. were programs that sort of gradually pulled back benefits as you began to earn more. Right now we have basically a, an edge of the cliff system. You make a dollar over that amount and you're cut off completely. Mm -hmm. And especially for somebody who requires a lot of medical assistance and they're using Medicare, um, you know, maybe they need personal care attendants or, um, you know, other sort of higher cost uh, medical services, suddenly cutting them off from, from Medicare if they're not working enough to have benefits, um, it essentially prevents them from working um, because they can't risk those benefits. Mm -hmm. So even if they could be, um, you know, progressing into employment and making progress, uh, they're, they're forced not to uh, because they don't have any way of sort of tapering off of disability benefits as they improve their earning capability um, and their ability to, to pay for their, their health care uh, themselves. Because a lot of times if you're starting back into the workforce and you're having to do so gradually, you're going to start out part-time and probably without benefits. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I like that description of edge of the cliff versus, did you call it ticket to work? that was actually the name of, of a program that okay. um, that was put in place for unfortunately a limited period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea was to encourage people um, to go back into the workforce mm -hmm. uh, to the extent they were able mm -hmm. um, without having to risk all of their benefits um, mm -hmm. if they reached a certain point. Which I think is important because I think so often we can get meaning from our work and so many other valuable things. We feel like if we have purpose and, and things like that, but now that you've described it that way, that's really, um, I can understand how, what a struggle that would be for people. And like you said, if you make a dollar more to lose your 
health insurance and to lose your um, disability payments would be obviously hugely impactful on your life. Yeah, it, it, can, it can be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm aware of at least um, one attorney who, um, due to the significant nature of his disability, was never able to practice for money. Mm-hmm. He volunteered his entire career. Wow. So he never once earned earned a dollar from from his legal practice. Mm-hmm. Wow! Uh, and that was because he required near round the clock personal care attendant assistance um, mm-hmm. due to the the significant nature of his disability. Mm-hmm. But he but he was able to do some work, and he but he did it in a volunteer capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if he had charged what an attorney, especially later on in his career with his level of experience, um, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been able to work more than an hour or two a week without getting over that threshold. Right. Okay. Uh, one of the other questions was, as a current law student, how can I get this course in my law school? Uh, a lot of that's going to depend on the availability of somebody to teach it. Um, mm-hmm. The probably a good first step would be to determine interest. If you can get a group of students who are interested in having a class like that, um, take that then to your academic dean or whoever plays that similar similar role in your law school, um, and present that to them that that's that's something that there is is interest. Uh, you'll probably have better luck um, asking for something like a seminar, which is mm-hmm. usually a, a like a two credit hour class um, as opposed to what's often called a doctrinal class, which is usually three credit hours and has an exam at the end. Mm -hmm. Seminars usually result in in a, in a paper. Uh, And so it can be easier sometimes to pursue it more along the lines of a seminar, at least initially. Um, Personally, I find that's a better structure for, for that type of class anyway, but that may, may simply be personal preference. Uh, but a lot of it comes down to being able to find somebody who is willing to teach it in in your area, uh, because a lot of times they will be like me; they'll be an adjunct um, and not a full time professor. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have somebody that teaches healthcare law, though, um, you may approach them to see um, if that's something that they would be willing to teach. If if you could get enough interest together, um, because there there does tend to be quite a bit of crossover in, in teaching between those two two topics. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, we're down to the last couple of questions here. <laughs> um, one question was, do you believe hypermobile EDS is a progressively disabling condition? Uh, that, that seems a little bit more like a medical question. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I, I originally, and I, and I will actually address this question on an AMA episode, uh, ask me anything episode. So I will provide my own answer um, on a separate uh, podcast, but I was curious if you had any thoughts. <laughs> um, personally, I, I can really only speak for, from my personal experience and the experience mm-hmm. of, of friends of mine who also have EDS. Um, I have found that my injuries accumulate. I don't know mm-hmm. that my hypermobility is necessarily progressively worse, mm-hmm. but the number of injuries I've acquired over time has increased some of my limitations mm-hmm. um, and uh, and some of the problems that I've had had with my joints. And I know that's that's also been true for for a few of my friends that as they have done things that have resulted in injuries, um, those injuries themselves have caused. Um, you know, additional symptoms and limitations. So in that sense, I think it's at least cumulative, if not, if not strictly progressive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And uh, the last of the social media questions, I know we talked about before we started recording that this could be an entire episode and perhaps we, well, if there's enough interest, actually, um, it would be great for people to give us feedback on this if they think this would be very beneficial. What makes disaster and emergency response accessible? So there are a lot of things that go into this. Um, The most important thing is for people's functional and access needs to be met. So that includes things like uh, transportation availability in the case of of a mandatory evacuation, because not everybody can drive. And that's not just people with disabilities either. It's, Mm -hmm. um, could include other people who simply don't have access to a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Um, It includes accessible communications. So 
things presented in audio and visual and uh, sign, sign language format. It includes shelters, uh, emergency shelters that are accessible um, and not um, and not segregated. In other words, people with disabilities should not all be sent to one specific shelter um, that is only for people with disabilities uh, because you don't want to, you should not be separating them from their families. They should be served adequately in any emergency shelter, um, just like anybody else would be. Um, you know, it's having the ability to manage somebody who may have a medically necessary diet or who may need certain medications um, in uh, an emergency shelter environment or during an evacuation. Um, it's things like, do you have provisions to care for service dogs during mm -hmm. an emergency? Um, I mean, most people will not evacuate without their pets, much less without their service animals. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so much that, that goes into doing this well. Um, and there have been two major lawsuits um, about this, one in New York uh, about Hurricane Sandy, and then uh, one in LA that have looked at the fairly overwhelming failures of local government entities and emergency response organizations uh, at considering the needs of, of people with disabilities and kind of making that uh, a last minute, oh wait, we should probably have done something. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, people with disabilities do tend to be disproportionately negatively impacted um, by both natural and man-made man disasters. Uh, but there are simple things too. Um, a lot of times people with disabilities aren't included in fire drills. They're mm -hmm. just told to wait because it's just a drill. But if you never practice, you won't know how to do it when it's real. Uh, and this is true um, in the educational system as, as well, uh, that children won't be included in various drills. Uh, and then sometimes may then be left during an actual emergency because nobody's ever practiced what to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's it's a huge subject, um, and as somebody I uh, worked in the disaster response field for um, for a few years uh, prior to law school, and um, there's we've come a long way, but there's a long way to go on mm -hmm. on making it acceptable to uh, and accessible to people with functional and, and access needs. Okay, so we're about to get to the hypermobility hack that you would like to share. But before we get into that, do you have any final thoughts or did I miss any questions that you think I should have asked? No, I don't think so. I think that's covered it um, fairly well. Of course, I, I can't give advice for any you know specific mm -hmm. um, situations, but hopefully that's been um, uh, enough of an overview for people to get, get started. Mm-hmm. No, I think this is great information. Okay, so can you tell us uh, at least one or more than one of your favorite hypermobility hacks? So my favorite one is actually behind me, if I can get my finger in the picture right here. And this is this is my walking desk. Um, I have a lot of issues with my hips and low back. Um, and so sitting for long periods of time is not good. Um, standing for long periods of time is also not good. Mm -hmm. So... I bought, I went to a used sporting goods store and I bought the cheapest treadmill I could find. And it is very cheap um, and in not particularly great condition. And I, I built, uh, bolted a, an old um, bookshelf shelf um, to the kind of arm rails that come out from it. And I turned that into a walking desk so I can walk at even one mile an hour. Mm -hmm. um, that's enough if I keep my legs moving, that's generally enough to keep my pots sort of happy. Um, and it keeps my back and my hips moving, um, mm -hmm. avoiding some of the issues that I have with sitting for long periods of time. And that has made a huge difference in my work tolerance and in my pain levels. And so I sort of rotate between my chair, my walking desk and sitting propped up in bed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's been, especially recently, one of the, the biggest things that, that has made a, a huge difference. I love that. And are there certain things that are either easier or harder to do with the walking desk? 
so I can't really do uh, any type of video conferencing on it because mm. the problem with cheap treadmills is they're loud. Um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> they make specific like walking desk treadmills that are quieter, but they're also a much higher price point. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't really do that. Um, if, if you tend to get movement sick, like car sick, it may not work so well to do detail work while you're doing that. Mm. Um, but I've found that um, sometimes using like a, a full-size keyboard as opposed to my laptop keyboard that doesn't require quite as much fine motor skills mm. and using a, an actual mouse instead of like the trackpad on my laptop can help because sometimes really fine detailed movements can be harder to do when you're walking because you know, most people are going to sort of bounce up and down a little bit as they walk. Mm -hmm. And so that can be, that can be a little bit more difficult. Um, but I've, I've found a few workarounds a and it does take some practice. <laughs> <laughs> and how many um, minutes or hours would you say on an average work day that you would perhaps be spending using your walking desk? Uh, probably about one to two hours. Oh, wow. Um, it's also, I think, been fairly good for, for my fitness level. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's not quite to the point of maybe being considered like actual cardio exercise, but it's it's movement. It's movement. Yeah, that's I think that's fantastic. I, yeah, mo movement is so important. So I think that's great. Okay. Uh, is there a way people could connect with you if they're interested? So um, I am on Instagram um, okay. at failure underscore option. Um, I don't, um, I'm not in practice. I'm strictly in, in the academic world right now. So I cannot consult about um, individual cases. Mm -hmm. uh, I can um, at times provide resources mm -hmm. um, and I'm happy if, if people reach out, um, I may be able to provide links or resources, but I can't provide any, any personal um, consultation. Sure. Okay. Well, this has been such a great conversation. And I think a lot of people are really going to find it beneficial. And you have been listening to the Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast. And my guest today was Professor Tiffany Lee. Professor Lee, thank you so much for coming on the Bendy Bodies podcast today and sharing your um, incredible knowledge with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with a Hypermobility MD podcast. Visit our new website at bendybodiespodcast.com, where you can now view guest profiles and show notes with links to products and journal articles. Leave me a comment, sign up for updates, leave a review or a voicemail, and access the podcast on your favorite player all directly from our website. You may hear your voicemail in a future episode where we answer your question or dive into your gracious feedback. Follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories. So be a buddy and engage our community by using the hashtag bendy buddy. That's hashtag B-E-N-D-Y-B-U-D-D-Y. You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn at HypermobilityMD. Visit HypermobilityMD.com for information about medical services and one-on-one -on -one coaching. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. Opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the host or any particular organization. Sponsorship of the podcast does not necessarily mean an endorsement. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.